This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist who's lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas since 1993. I was born here in Arkansas and it was nice to come back home to raise my family. But I started Self Work now five years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be interested in psychological and emotional issues, but want to hear another psychologist's viewpoint, another therapist's viewpoint. To those of you who just have been diagnosed with something or you're looking for some answers with your relationship or whatever your struggle is. But also to those of you, a very special group to me, those of you who would say to your friends, oh, I'd never go to a shrink. I think that's kind of crazy to do that. But you're curious enough or unhappy enough to give self-work a listen. So welcome to all of you. Today, we're going to talk about interdependence, something that I think is important for a couple or partnership to have with one another. It develops over time and can mature and grow as the different stages of life bring along their own struggles and where what you count on with another alters. The term dependency or codependent has become tainted a bit because of the prevalence of codependency. But what most people who write about interdependence talk about is the need for a solid sense of self. We'll focus on what in the heck that is as I try to get rid of jargon and get down to how you can create it, that solid sense of self. The listener voicemail is a painful one to hear. And also difficult because I don't have a really great answer. I can certainly hear how the listener is watching someone he loves emotionally suffer, yet the situation he describes doesn't seem to be one he can control. I'll try to suggest to him what he does have in his control, as little as that may seem. So today on this episode, sponsored once again by BetterHelp, let's talk about codependence, interdependence, and whatever in the world a solid sense of self is supposed to be. First, let's talk about codependence. You know, there was a time when codependence wasn't a word, but when spouses of alcoholics started meeting together for support and understanding, I think it was like in the 1940s or 50s, the term was created to explain the dynamic between an alcoholic and their partner who was spending a lot of time making things work, enabling the alcoholic is what it's called, and believing they were doing the right thing by keeping the impact of the alcoholic's behavior a secret. They'd lie, for example, about the reason their partner was late to work or they couldn't make it to a party. These spouses began to recognize that they were all following the same formerly unspoken rules. Hey, wait a minute, they said. Maybe our behavior is part of the problem. What we all thought was our own private answer to the very painful issue of a partner's alcoholism is something a lot of people do, and it actually enables the alcoholic to stay immersed in their illness. That's when the very important support group, Al-Anon, was formed, and their mantra of detach with love has been so helpful to many. But the meaning of the term codependent has broadened widely since that time. Now codependence has been described as a relationship addiction. This means losing yourself in the relationship, having such an intense fear of it ending that you'll sacrifice yourself and your healthy boundaries to keep it intact. 
You may be experiencing low self-esteem, have a tendency towards extreme people-pleasing, and you're desperate for control. Instead of your partner enhancing the life you've created for yourself, you feel as if you couldn't live without them. I know we get heady with first love, and you feel as if you can't breathe if you don't get to see the person you're falling in love with soon. I'm not talking about that stage of love. But couples move out of that and into everyday, pull-on-your-boots-and-live-life kind of love. And codependence keeps that kind of love from happening. Instead, a codependent relationship can look like two people not supporting one another's individuality, but instead holding one another back from their potential. I need you so you can't have your own life or interests or choices. It can grow in similarity to a victim-savior relationship, which is very difficult and paralyzing for both. If this is you... There's a group also that is sort of like Al-Anon. It's called CODA, Codependence Anonymous, a support group for people who have these issues and want to create a healthier relationship with themselves and their partner. I'd highly suggest it. But now let's go on and talk about dependence versus interdependence. Just why is the word dependence getting a bad rap? Because you'll hear things like, no one can make you happy but yourself, or I don't need anyone else to make me complete. While there's some truth to these statements, they're not what makes relationships or intimacy work. Denying the healthy aspects of a loving interdependent relationship because you don't want to flip into codependence keeps us from talking about true, helpful, healthy interdependence. So what is that? What is healthy interdependence? Very well mind had what I thought was a great explanation, and I quote, Interdependence or interdependency suggests that partners recognize and value the importance of the emotional bond they share while maintaining a solid sense of self within the relationship dynamic. And I'll have the entire article about that in your show notes. This is a helpful definition, I think. The couple honors both relationship for its strengths as well as each individual's contributions and worth as a person in and of themselves. But what does it mean to maintain a solid sense of self? That kind of sounds like psychologies to me, and you know I like to stay away from jargon. But before we talk about this solid sense of self, let's take a short break to hear from BetterHelp about a great offer they have for self-work listeners. And afterward, I'll give you five things that I think make up this whole solid sense of self concept. I'm always honored when one of you reaches out to me to ask, hey, could I see you? Unfortunately, right now I can only see people in Arkansas, but I do have a suggestion for you. I've personally found that BetterHelp, the leading online therapeutic counseling service, is really a great option, and I've partnered with them here at SelfWork to provide you with a professional, very affordable, and trustworthy source of help, no matter where you live. In fact, BetterHelp has been a sponsor of SelfWork for more than a year, and I can't tell you how much it's meant to have their help and support here on the program. But of course, before any kind of relationship happened, I tried better help myself. They use only licensed therapists, meaning licensed professional counselors, social workers, marriage and family therapists, probably even some psychologists, and they match you up with someone likely in the same state as you if you're here in the United States. But I want to talk about what really stood out for me. I saw two different counselors, or <laughs> I didn't see them, but I worked with them. For one thing, it was very convenient, and they both tried their best to meet my schedule. The second thing was, you know, those of you on the podcast often write reviews or send me emails that say, hey, I really like that you make direct suggestions on what to try, real tangible recommendations. And the two counselors I tried did that as well. 
It's not that empathy and a listening ear isn't valuable. Sometimes we all can benefit from working through emotions in a safe relationship. However, I believe you get hope when you see yourself handling emotions that previously you couldn't, or maybe you speak up in meetings where before you didn't care enough to, or maybe your confidence was shot. You want to be able to see real change in yourself. Both of them actually offered worksheets for me to use to get a little deeper into things outside of the session. So I walked away with ideas. You know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and everyone's lives have been challenged to a lesser or greater extent for a year or more. So that's the backdrop we all have to deal with. And BetterHelp wants to be there for you. But also because you listen to self-work, you do have a really good offer for them. You'll receive a 10% discount on your first month of service if you use this code. TryBetterHelp.com slash self-work. That's TryBetterHelp.com slash self-work. And you'll find a counselor uniquely chosen for your preferences and needs. And then, of course, write me and let me know how it goes. If your first counselor isn't a great fit for you, they'll find somebody else, just like in non-online therapy. And after all, so many counselors are only working online these days, and BetterHelp isn't expensive. So try BetterHelp, because reaching out can be so vital to your mental health. So here are my two bits about a solid sense of self. First, you have to know your value. How many people do I ask, can you name your strengths? And they look at me blankly, no, I can't. There's really not much of a chance if you don't own your competencies, your own strengths. The things you do well or the things you like about yourself, some that aren't tangible, that's basic self-esteem. You have to have that to build healthy interdependence because... What happens if you don't is you'll lean on your partner for reassurance or allow them to control you. You want to be able to say, they're lucky to have me for this reason or that reason, not in a grandiose way, but in a way that you claim and value what you bring to the table. So you have to know your own value first and foremost. Second, you need to have a voice. That doesn't mean that you dominate. That doesn't mean getting your way all the time. But it does mean that you voice your own hopes, your expectations, your desires. You're willing to engage in compromise and negotiation. Compromise can't happen. If both parties aren't clear about where they initially stand, I love to give this metaphor. Think of a football game. You know, both teams actually take a stance, right? They all line up and the quarterback does his thing or her thing. And there we go. You couldn't play the game if neither team established their positions initially. If everybody just ran around and didn't take a stance, there wouldn't be a way to play, or it'd be awfully chaotic. So, compromise starts when you both are clear and have a voice about how you feel, what you want, what you expect, what your desires are. Now, here's another point. The two of you, interdependent as you may be, may have to agree to disagree, Very Well Mind's definition included some statement of there not being a need for compromise, but I obviously didn't give it because I don't agree with that. There are many folks who have differing spiritual beliefs, political stances, or expectations about family, for example, and they have good relationships. They have good partnerships. As long as both individuals are respected, then healthy compromises can occur. I think it's a little too idyllic to think your partner is going to share all your values. That occurs sometimes, but not always. So again, we're talking about the elements of what's called a solid sense of self in the literature. 
First, you have to know your value. Second, you have to have a voice. Number three, you have to have healthy boundaries. What does that mean? People talk a lot about boundaries, but what exactly are they? My dad used to say that a person's rights end where another person's nose begins. (laughs) And you can begin to tell whether someone has healthy boundaries themselves or they're going to respect yours early in the dating relationship. Let's say you tell someone you're dating that you want to take things slowly. Then they turn around and push and push to spend more time with you. That's not respecting your boundary. But boundaries aren't necessarily space or time related. The boundary or limit or stated expectation could be that someone you're serious about tells you that they were abused by a parent. So they struggle when you express anger with them. This is a more complex boundary because their journey is to learn that conflict can be healthy, right? But you may have to be more patient with them as they learn. A healthy boundary means that you don't invade or discount or ignore what someone is telling you about themselves and vice versa. You respect them and they you. So it's not that you never get angry, but when you're respecting someone's boundaries, when they say, I'm easily triggered by your anger, then you understand that it's important how you verbalize that to them. And then help them learn that conflict is just fine. Sometimes it can be tricky because the boundary that someone sets is actually irrational or even manipulative. For example, if someone you're dating says they don't want you to go out with your friends without them, that's controlling. Or that they expect numerous texts throughout the day when you've got a job that takes a lot of focus. And that really can't happen. So because, again, you have a voice, right? You can say, sorry, I cannot abide by that. I cannot meet your expectation. And it may end the relationship. But because you know your worth, which is number one, you're going to be okay with that. Respecting each other's boundaries is vital. Fourth, you also take responsibility for your vulnerabilities and can apologize for the negative or painful impact you can have on your partner in the relationship. For example, if you have a quick temper, you aren't defensive about it when you slip up and are overreactive. If you're more passive, you realize that your partner isn't a mind reader and may not realize you're not on board. This is so important because what it means is that you have some maturity about how your vulnerabilities, the things that you're still working on or the things you'd like to change in yourself, are going to have an impact and sometimes a negative impact on your relationship. And you watch out for that. You know, the person who's passive might say, you know, I realize now that I never really told you that I didn't want to X, Y, or Z. I just thought you'd see it in my face or something like that. So this balances out, number one, right? You know your value, but you also know your vulnerabilities, and you can talk about both. This takes a lot of emotional maturity. Number five, very well minds definition talked about that you have to be able to be emotionally vulnerable yourself. But I think people vary a lot as far as their comfort level with emotional vulnerability actually is, meaning you allow your partner into deeper emotions or you tell them about painful experiences. And I know there are a vast number of couples who rarely have ever talk on a more intimate level. Would I call that a bad relationship? Uh, I stay away from that. I think it's a little sad. I think people are missing out on an aspect of being a human being that can really enrich your life. And sexual vulnerability is part of that scenario as well. 
truly allowing someone into what you want or feel sexually toward them or toward yourself. But I don't think it's quite fair to hold up some kind of yardstick and say, well, you don't have a good relationship if you don't have this extreme emotional vulnerability in your relationship. But I will say that it takes someone who's very solid in their own emotional stability to open up and take emotional risks, to allow their partner to know them on a deeper level and vice versa. And this can definitely be part of interdependence because what you know is that your partner knows things about you that they're keeping very confidential, that they don't use against you in an argument, and that you feel very safe with them. So traveling into the world of emotional intimacy and vulnerability can certainly be an important part of interdependence, and it can build immense trust. Interdependence can also be very pragmatic. A while back, my husband was out of town for three or four days, and every time that happens, I notice what I count on him to do around the house. Like most couples, we have separate responsibilities. I don't retrieve the dead mouse from behind the trash, and he's practically forgotten how to turn off the stove. If something happened to one of us, either the house would be overridden with rodents or fast food wrappers would abound in that trash. I mean, we could learn to survive alone like many people do every day, but we become pragmatically interdependent. I count on his strengths and he counts on mine. That happens in an emotional realm as well. I count on his patience because I need reminding every now and then that good things come to those who wait, but he counts on my energy because I think ahead and plan things. So interdependence doesn't mean you have to lose yourself or become less of a strong individual. Tangibly, it means life isn't quite so hard because you've got a partner. You've got someone to count on. You may even believe that your differences strengthen the partnership. I certainly think it does. But let's talk about one more point. What do you do now if you don't have a relationship that values interdependence or both people having a solid sense of self? Is there a way to guide an already established relationship into more of this pattern? I'd give a tentative yes. And the tentativeness of this is due to one major necessity. Both people work toward that change. Now, this is going to sound contradictory. I've often said I can do marital work with one person in the room. It happens a lot that as my client or the person who's sitting in front of me begins to quote-unquote work on themselves to look at their own entrenched patterns and begin to make small changes and then larger ones, then their partner may get curious, maybe even commenting, you know, you seem different. And their own behavior or attitude may begin to change as both climb out of some kind of painful pattern of behavior. But that doesn't always happen. Instead, you may hear complaints about actions that you believe are much healthier or pushback when you use your voice. That's not what your partner expects and they don't like. Don't get me wrong. I've seen couples make vast changes. It's hard work, but they do it. Why do they do it? Because they're tired of the way things have been. They feel demoralized and they still love one another enough to try. Another example came to mind. A woman years ago came in to see me after her husband had died. He was well-known internationally, and she had spent the months after his death flying around the world, accepting honors on his behalf. I thought I was doing great with my grief. I cried a lot, missed him terribly, but I thought I was fine. She was walking up her back steps one day and broke her arm. He wasn't there to hear her call for help. That was the moment the totality of her grief hit her. People who are living alone 
can miss having someone they can depend on, or you can certainly feel that way in the middle of a relationship. But I don't think it's good to be afraid of depending on someone if it's the right someone. And you are dependable in return. You're that much closer to having a great relationship as well as that solid sense of self. Today we have a listener email that describes a very, very difficult situation. I am watching my fiancé suffer day by day because of her sick mother, period. Her mother has let her home rot to the ground, and she lives in a car. She is 78 years old, and still to this day, 50 years later, torments my fiancé, calling her names and telling her that this is all her fault. Since the age of 11, she has been taking care of herself and her sister and her mother. At times, her mother calls my fiancé mom. It is such a sick situation, I do not know what to do to help. She obviously needs mental help. But every time she is hospitalized, they release her. I am really at a loss. Can you suggest anything that we could do to take control of the situation? We would love to sell the house that she has, what is left of it, and put her in an assisted living facility. I've sadly heard this kind of story many times. A mentally ill or perhaps emotionally manipulative parent or grandparent who's refused for years to get help or treatment, either because of addictions or hoarding or anxiety or stubbornness or depression or denial of their own condition, and it leads to what can seem like never-ending chaos. In these times, the great preponderance of psychiatric treatment centers are for crisis management only. The patient has to be seen as an ongoing threat to themselves or someone else, and I don't mean emotional threat. They have to be homicidal or suicidal to stay longer than a few days. It can be difficult as well to have an older person who's mentally declining but not demented be legally considered as incompetent. I'm not an expert on that, however. You need to check with a lawyer because I imagine there's a lot of legal variance locally and certainly regionally or between states. I can certainly hear this man's anger, confusion, and sense of helplessness, and that all makes sense. To me, however, what he has control over is how he supports his fiancée and her struggle with detaching from her mother's emotional manipulation. If he takes control, she's likely not to do that for herself. She may have given her mother a lot of control. He shouldn't necessarily step into that role. It may be that there are other family players, other family members involved who are also getting blamed, or maybe it's his fiancée who's the major target. He, out of his love and concern, wants to problem-solve and do the thing that might protect everyone from more chaos, and that makes rational sense. For example, a trip to his potential mother-in-law's primary care physician might be helpful, although with HEPA, that doctor may not feel that they can share information, but at least they can be told what's going on. Or you can involve someone who his mother-in-law trusts. People who run senior care centers in the area might have an idea of what's available in the community, But I will say, this kind of behavior is very hard to change in someone as old as his mother-in-law because it sounds like she's not taking responsibility for herself. The only way to do that is she becomes a clear threat to herself or someone else, and then it could be a legal matter. 
but it's still one that can be very emotionally and mentally difficult. So my answer, which may not be all that helpful, and he may be doing it already, to empower his fiance all he can, empower her to get therapy, to find a way to emotionally attach from the messages her mother gives. There's lots of books about that. I hate you, don't leave me is one of them. Understanding the borderline mother is another. I'm not sure what her problems are, but it may be in that realm. To empower her also to deal with whatever family or sibling issues there might be. The listener becoming angry isn't necessarily going to help and may even somewhat cause his fiance to defend her mother. Sometimes when you become angry for someone about a situation, they'll be less likely to discover their own anger. So I hope that's helpful. I know it's very difficult, but we were talking before about setting healthy boundaries, and that is definitely a part of your fiancé's work with her mother and her understanding how it's impacting you as well. I want to thank you all so very much for being here. Thanks so much to those of you who've left ratings and reviews. I see those ratings climb on Apple Podcasts. It makes me smile because I know you're still there and you're still listening. And maybe even some of you are new listeners. I hope so. Email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com and let me know. And of course, the written reviews are wonderful because they give me a distinct idea of what you really like or you have some ideas about what you'd like to hear. And of course, my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, remains available. I got to talk to the Arkansas Psychological Association members about it last week, and that was a thrill. It's basically a book that talks about how you begin to heal from childhood trauma, when you've been covering up, even perhaps to yourself, how hard it's been, and you try to just stay in immense emotional control. It's available in ebook, audiobook, as well as a paperback. I want to tell you about another opportunity to interact with me. It's a new podcast called Self Work Chat, and it's on the Fireside app. I'll have the link in my show notes, but if you go to firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford, that's again, firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford, it'll take you to a page that at the top says request access to Fireside, and Fireside's just an app. It's a free app. You do have to have an iPhone. They're working on one for Android at the moment, but it is interactive. We can actually talk with one another. There's a small process they go through to let you in to Fireside, but I know all of you would be great members. And guys, there's so many other people that are talking. It's really a lot of fun. It's engaging. You can join through my link, but that will link you up to everybody on Fireside. And you can start enjoying interacting with them too. Mark Cuban is behind this because he believes, and I do too, that the more interactive the podcast is, the more people are going to enjoy it. So join me on Fireside for self-work chat. I also still have my Facebook closed group. We've rounded up to 3,000 members, and I'd love to have you there. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Again, thank you so much for being here. Please take very, very good care. We're approaching the holidays, and that can be a really tough time, and especially during a pandemic. We'll be talking more about that. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.